0: Welcome to Cross Lane Community Church, where we are committed to bringing people to Jesus. We hope you enjoy this online message.
1: We uh, have learned in this series that before coming to Jesus, Paul was a a bounty hunter. Um, He used to hunt down Christians, and his goal was to have them tried and, in his mind, hopefully found guilty, and he would like to have seen them uh, persecuted. Murdered, and I'm just guessing that at certain points in Paul's life, when he stepped back and took inventory of what had gone on in his world, um, he had some thoughts of what a strange life. Maybe you would be able to say that. Maybe you would be able to back off your life and look at it and go, "Man, that is that. what a strange life. Last week we learned that the ultimate message that he really wanted to get across, his heartbeat, if you will, and ours here at Cross Lane. If you could pin Paul down or us and ask us what is the one thing you want to make sure that people understand, that one thing would be grace. We really want people to understand what grace is. We, we talked a lot in this series about a courtroom scenario, so to keep that going, grace is like mercy except a lot better. See, mercy is not getting what you deserve. Uh, mercy is not getting punished for what you deserve to get punished for. I was able to spend a little time with my mom and dad toward the end of the week. And uh, pretty early on into that trip, um, I was watching television with my parents and and a commercial came on and I'm sure they would love for me to be able to tell you what the commercial was. I can't remember that. All I remember is that there were these two little boys and they were washing, they were going to wash their dad's car, which sounds great. Until you hear that they washed it with the windows down, and they you know they've got the soap all over the place, and they've having a ball with the hose, and there's water shooting everywhere, and you know this the camera's showing all these different angles of these kids and it's i mean the minute it's if anybody who's ever had a car of any value at all you see this and you're you know you kind of cringe inside like oh, you know water, and the water's going on the inside, and they show a picture of them scrubbing the the radio dial with the brush you know it's just you're just watching this thinking oh my goodness and then they're having a ball and all of a sudden they look over their shoulder and there's dad and it's at that point that you think wow he's gonna he's about to go off I mean he's he's about to come unglued on these two boys and you know my parents and I were kind of watching this like okay what's gonna happen it's great commercial because you're thinking okay what's gonna happen and this moment where they just are kind of looking at him, and he picks up the the sponge, and he smiles, and he says, "You missed a spot." And here's this car, probably ruined, got water all over the place, inside and out, soap suds everywhere, and you're thinking, "Well, if he gives those boys what they deserve, they're going to get a whooping." Is what they're going to get, and I mean, that's certainly what I would have gotten. there have been no question if I'd done that to my dad's truck, I'm getting a whooping. Okay, no question. And, you know, of course, my dad pipes up, and I'm thinking that in my head. I would get, I would just get absolutely blistered for that. And my dad over in his chair says, well, I can tell you, if one of my boys did that, you know, we'd have have had some trouble. And that's when my mom's, you know, she the voice of reason. She kind of piped up and talked to him as only she can, and she said, now, The damage has already been done. She said those boys thought they were doing a good thing, and that dad was a good dad. He did the right thing. You know, there's nothing he can do about it. He may as well just smile and go on with it and, you know, maybe suggest that they not do that again. But that's mercy. That's not getting what you deserve. And and it's kind of like being acquitted of a crime that you actually did commit. You know, when you commit a crime, you think, well, I deserve the punishment. Mercy is you don't get that punishment. Grace takes it a step further in that it's not only not being punished for what you did, it's being rewarded instead of being punished. Now, you can take that too far, and I know when when you hear that, you're going to think, whoa, wait a minute, but if you think about it, that's kind of what goes on when we receive grace from God. That's kind of what God has done for us. Last week, we read this verse, God made him who had no sin... To be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And that person was Jesus, and we learned what Martin Luther, we learned about what Martin Luther called the, the great exchange, that we get to trade our guilt and our shame for the righteousness of Jesus. That is a right standing with God. That that when God sees me as a believer, what he sees is the righteousness of Christ on me. I, by myself, am not perfect at all. There's no way. But what God sees when He sees me, and when He sees you, those of you who are Christians, what He sees is the righteousness of Christ. He took the punishment in our place. He made the payment that was ours. It is this amazing thing called grace. I heard a great phrase this week. I'd never heard it put this way, but I heard this phrase. Grace is much like water. It flows to the lowest point. Isn't that good? it flows to the lowest point that's true when i was a, a, a youth pastor i you know i was always looking for ways to make things simple for the kids to remember and understand and so for the word grace to teach the word grace to the kids and youth group i taught them the acrostic g r a c e god's riches at christ's expense we get the riches And it wasn't free, it cost Christ greatly, but God's riches at Christ's expense. It's a sweet deal. We get all of God's riches and he takes all our punishment away. And I want to look today at how we should respond to such a great gift. Such a great gift is grace. Paul was a smart guy and he knows how people operate. I kind of think probably his mind operated very much like ours would. Paul wants to address how we would respond to this thing called grace. You know, it, it would be possible to hear a message like we heard last weekend and to leave and say, well, Brett, wait a minute. What you're saying is my whole salvation thing isn't dependent upon me doing a bunch of good stuff and it can't be taken away because I do a bunch of bad stuff. If I hear you right, what you're saying is it actually isn't dependent on anything that I do at all. It's totally dependent on what Jesus did for me and I would say yes that's exactly right and you might be tempted to respond well all I have to do then is accept this free thing called grace that's all I have to do and you're telling me that my salvation is not based on my performance yes that's what I'm telling you see Paul knows how our mind works Paul knows that we would be tempted to say well then why don't I just kinda use grace as my get out of hell free card and I'll just ask forgiveness later. Paul knows how our mind works. He wrote a letter to the Christians in the church at Rome. And in the sixth chapter of Romans, he wants to address how we should respond to this thing called grace. This is what he wrote. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? See, that's the argument. Well, we should just, you know, if we, when we sin, we get grace. Maybe we should just sin more so that we get more grace. And then he says in verse 2, by no means we died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Now, if you have your Bible, that's where we're going to be today for the most part is in Romans chapter 6. Another way to translate that passage is may it never be. To do that would be totally incompatible with the experience of grace. So Paul says instead, as followers of Jesus, we actually do this thing called dying to sin. Instead of pursuing sin, what does that mean? You say, Brett, that sounds kind of religious. What is it? Dying to sin, what does that mean? There are four senses in which followers of Jesus die to sin. The first, in keeping with our courtroom uh, deal that we've got going on, the judicial sense. In the judicial sense, when Jesus died on the cross on behalf of all who would believe, we we have been declared righteous in that. That is to say that God looks at us and he sees Jesus. Romans says that we have the right, the gift of the righteousness of Christ, that, that I and myself am not perfect. But when God sees me, what he sees is a perfect person because what he sees on me as a believer is the righteousness of Christ. And we are declared good based on what Jesus did for us, not what we have done on our own. And in that moment, it was final and it was irreversible. So we have, in a sense, died to sin in a judicial way. The second way we do that is through baptism. We die to sin in the sense because we, we publicly identify with what Jesus did on our behalf. I, I tell people all the time when they're uh, getting baptized, I say, You never physically look more like Jesus than when you are being baptized. That, that much the same way that Jesus was alive and buried and rose again, that is the picture that God paints for us as we get baptized. Dying to ourselves, dying to sin. What do you do with a dead person? You bury a dead person, and much like Jesus, we are raised to walk in the newness of life. Death, burial, and resurrection. In baptism, we identify with all three, the old life being buried. We're raised to walk in the newness of life. It's a beautiful picture. And Paul says it's like in verse 3, Or do you not know, don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. That's what baptism is all about. Baptism is about new life. So in the judicial sense, in the baptism sense, And then in the daily sense, we die to sin. In other words, every day, a person like you or me who's following Jesus, we have to work really, really hard to follow him. And what we're doing is we're not trying to find the loopholes in grace so that we can just get away with a bunch of stuff. What we're trying to do is figure out how to die to sin. Verse 5, if we have been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. The death he died, he died once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been bought, brought from death to life and offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness for in sin for sin shall no not for sin shall not be your master because you are not under law but under grace so here's what that means just for a second let's take God out of the equation and let's pretend that I have run up massive debts in my life let's let's pretend that um, I've run up debt to the degree that my life is crumbling all around me and I'm going to lose my house and my cars and everything that's precious to me and I'm headed for the streets and you because you love me you decide at great cost to yourself that you are going to pay my debt and, and as a result of your generosity I'm going to get to move back into the house my family's going to be back with me and We are going to be saved from the brink of disaster. How should I respond to that? You're not asking for a payback. You're not asking for interest. It's a free gift, no strings attached. The question would be, what's the proper response to someone who experiences that kind of generosity? Let me do this. What if I took the money that you gave me to pay back all my creditors, and I made a beeline for the casino, and I put all that money down on a poker table? What if I did with that money what I had done with my own money? What would you call that? You would call that a disgrace. That's what it looks like to dishonor the giver when you trample the gift. What would be the right response to an amazing no-strings gift like the amazing grace we have been given the right response would be to make better decisions right to live humbly knowing that i didn't deserve such an amazing gift and to not squander what had been given to me but to honor the giver as i treasure the gift see when you're given something of great value you honor the giver by taking good care of whatever it is that has been given But I don't just do that today, it's also a future thing as well. So it's judicial, it's baptismal, it's daily, it's also future. I can't even tell you the joy it gives me to make the next sentence, okay? One day, our battle with sin will be over. Excuse me? Absolutely. Now, I don't ask for many amens, but that deserves an amen. All right, so I'm going to say it again. I think we should amen that, don't you? One day, our battle with sin will be over. Absolutely. That's going to be a good day. That's going to be a really good day. There will be a day when Jesus sets everything right that is wrong with this world. There will be a day when our battle with the old self, our addictions, our habits, our temptations, will finally be over. You will not wake up every day and fight that same demon. But here's the truth of the matter. We are not there yet. Which means that you and I, we live smack dab in the middle of that daily battle. Paul refers to something in us called the old self. Old habits, old wants and desires and sins and temptations that do battle with the new desires that we have to obey God and to follow him and to be able to honor the giver of this grace that we've received. And it's in the middle of that battle that we have this tendency to go in a dozen different directions. Some of us fall into the trap of resignation. We just live this life of defeated resignation. In other words, because we're still wrestling with all that old stuff, we just kind of give up and we allow ourselves to our old self, to continue to have power over us and to define us. And we start saying things in our heart like, I'm just a sinner, that's all I'm ever going to be, it's never going to get any better, I keep messing up, I keep falling and failing, so I guess I'll just give up and quit trying. Maybe you've been there before. Maybe you've been there with someone who in those dark moments, and they are dark moments, when someone has traded in months, if not years, of sobriety for one night. And you might have come here this morning and you would say, I, It's not that I've been in that place, Brett, I am in that place. And you have, by some miracle, dragged yourself in here today. You had been sober. You had stopped feeding your pornography addiction, but not now. It had been a long time since you'd taken something. It had been a long time since you'd lied to someone, but in a moment you fell and the sense of utter shame and defeat can make it very difficult to keep going. I think we've all been there at one point or another. If you hang around churches long enough, you you run into all kinds of theologies and philosophies, and to be real honest with you, some of them are just whacked out, okay? Let's just be honest. There's some people out there that believe some pretty strange stuff. One of the strange beliefs that you'll run into is, after you become a Christian, if you sin, not when you sin, but if you sin, then you're no longer saved if you sin after you become a Christian. There are people that believe that. Like Jesus takes it away until you're sorry again. Isn't that the craziest thing you've ever heard? Can I just tell you what's wrong with that? Everything's wrong with that. It's like Jesus is a a petty little kid that gives a gift and then revokes it every time something goes wrong. That's not how salvation works. Let me say this clearly to you. Your salvation is not based on anything you do, good or bad. Anything. Your salvation is based on one thing. We read this last week, and I quite honestly, I think if we were going to, we don't really have a church verse for Cross Lane, but if we were going to have a church verse for Cross Lane, this would be a strong candidate, in my opinion, to be Cross Lane's church verse. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. We did not earn our salvation through our works, and we don't keep our salvation through our works. It is grace, it is grace, it is grace by which we are saved. Another strange belief is this idea that you come to Jesus, once you come to Jesus, you don't really mess up anymore. That you need grace once, but after that, you don't really need grace anymore. That's kind of (laughs) stupid. That's kind of like being blind and through no fault of your own being healed of your blindness and then you go around for the rest of your life beating up blind people. That's what that's like. Jesus actually told a story like this. A man had accumulated this massive debt. It was bigger than anything he could have paid off in his lifetime. His master called on him to collect the debt. The man hits his knees and says, Please, please give me the opportunity to work this off. I'll do whatever I can to pay this debt. It was was an impossible request. There's no way this guy's going to pay it off. But the the master looks back at this man who's in his debt, and he says, your debt has been canceled. Go be free. The response of that guy, Jesus said, was to go out, find the first person that owed him money, and demand his money. And this guy got on his knees and said, would you please give me the opportunity to pay this back? I don't have the money now, but I'll work on it. I'll do what I can. And the guy said no, and he sent him to jail. You know any Christians like that? Somebody who's lost sight of grace, and now that God has lifted them out of the ditch, they don't need him anymore. And they think they can stand on their own two feet, and they can take it from here, and they love to stand by the ditch and throw stones at everybody else who falls. Paul himself lived in the middle of the same battle that every Christian would admit that they struggle with. And in Romans chapter 7, he says this, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. Is it just me or has everybody else felt that way too? And if I do what I do not want to do I agree that the law is good and it is n- and a- as it is it is no longer I myself who do it but it is sin living in me. I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my sinful nature for I have the desire to do what is good but I cannot carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want to do no the evil I do not want to do This I keep on doing. Anybody here say me too? Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. You ever been there? I have. ever been there where you're so weak the thing you want to do the thing you want to do more than anything you can't seem to get your hands on and the thing that you're trying to stay away from in the worst possible way that's the thing that's where you find yourself it's like god paul is admitting his weakness did you know that that is one of paul's favorite topics three dozen times in the new testament paul starts to talk about his weakness Philip Yancey is one of my favorite authors. He, he wrote a book on what he had learned from addicts and alcoholics in life, and he was reflecting on something that one of his alcoholic friends told him one time, and his friend said, I prayed every day that God would take away my thirst for drink, and every day I woke up and my first thought was Jack Daniels. Then one day I realized my craving for drink was the very reason I pray every day, My weakness drives me to God. My weakness drives me to God. If that sounds familiar, it's because Paul said the same thing. Paul had something that was constantly a battle for him in his life. We have no idea what it was, but we do know that he begged God to take it away. He begged God to take it away. And this thing was so big in Paul's life that he gave it a name. He called it his thorn in the flesh. A constant nagging that just would not be taken away. Look what happened. 2 Corinthians, three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses in insults in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulty. For when I am weak, I am strong. So for a follower of Jesus to pretend that they don't have any weaknesses is not only crazy, it's dangerous. Because if we don't believe we have any weaknesses, then we really don't believe we need God anymore. But if we are weak, we need Him every day. Here's what we have to know. We are not identified by our weaknesses and our sin any longer. Romans 7.20. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. Your sin does not define you anymore. If you're following after Jesus, your sin has no power and no right to define you and your life any longer. Paul keeps going, verse 21. So I find this law at work. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? That's a, there's a phrase in there that's very interesting. In my inner being, I delight in God's law. In other words, at his deepest level, despite all the surface level desires and temptations, he desires to obey God. That's what he desires. Let me ask you a question. Is your deepest desire to obey God. Push aside all the surface level wants, desires, and temptations. At your deepest level, at the end of the day, do you want to honor the one who gave you this gift called grace? Then at the end of the day, you're like all us other fellow strugglers trying to follow Jesus. We are no longer identified by our sin, but we are certainly struggling with it. We're struggling with this thing called the old self or the old man. Paul referred to him as the wretched man, a wretched man, literally a suffering, miserable, afflicted person. In other words, this battle can get so difficult it can take its toll and make it feel like there's, it's just way too much to handle sometimes. Is that your story? The battle of staying clean or sober or faithful or being honest or patient, the battle of self-control or the battle of whatever you would put in the blank. It can become overwhelming. And on our own, it is too much, but our weakness serves a great purpose because it drives us to God, who is powerful enough and who is more than enough we sing a song called Your Grace is Enough. Paul asks this question, who will rescue me from this body of death? That word rescue means who will snatch me from danger? Thanks be to God through Christ through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Jesus is the answer to the question, who will rescue me? Jesus will rescue you today tomorrow and in the future. How then should we respond to the one who saves us, not just yesterday, not just today, but in the future as well? Should we go on sinning that grace may increase? Paul said, may it never be. No. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. A couple hundred years ago, there was a young boy in England. He was raised by his mother until he was six years old, at which time she passed away. And since his dad was a sailor, this little fella kind of raised himself. And as you might imagine, he grew up kind of rough. He grew up somewhat of a rebellious kid. He got into a lot of trouble. He would describe himself as an atheist at a very early age. And eventually he would be drafted by the British Navy, where he would continue to get into trouble. He one time wrote a derogatory song about the ship's captain and got himself in trouble. It was not uncommon. He had been, he'd been behaved so badly on the boat before that they had beaten him because of his behavior. He threw himself into the sailor's life with filthy language and fights and alcohol and a different woman in every port. And eventually he found his way to slave trading ships where he would sail to Africa leading hunts where they would track down men, women, and children. They would gather them up, put them on the boat, chain them at the bottom of the boat, take them to another country, and sell them into slavery. Eventually he would start his own slave trade trade operation, and in his journals he would describe how he would rape the female slaves. He talked about how they would bring slaves up from the bottom and they would mistreat them and torture them, and when they got tired of them, they would have them killed. It sounds kind of like Paul when he was a bounty hunter, who stood and held coats and gave his hearty, hearty approval as Christians died at the hands of people throwing stones. One day while out on this ship, the slave trader picked up a book that someone had given him. The author was Thomas Kempis. He was bothered by the book because it made him question some of his own doubts. He was awakened in his sleep one night by one of the ship hands, and the, the ship hand was, was uh, pretty upset. He's shaking him to wake him up. He said, we're sinking. Get up. You've got to help us save the ship. There was a horrible storm going on outside, and This fellow got up, and in the middle of the night, trying to right the ship in the middle of this storm, he begins to do something that he had never done before in his life. He began to pray. Last week we said that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Better on a sinking ship now than on Judgment Day. This guy stayed on slave ships and continued to be pursued by God. Eventually his health would prevent him from being on the slave ships and he began to read his Bible more. Soon he could no longer reconcile slavery with his newfound faith in Jesus. And it was just a matter of time before he began to work with a great pastor in England named William Wilberforce Who had made it his life's goal to abolish slavery. This old sailor had become a pastor by now, and he found himself frustrated by some things in his church. Two things, actually. One was the Bible that they read was the King James Version, and he found that his people couldn't understand it. He wanted to communicate to them practically and in a real sense, this real love of a real God for real people. And he just, they couldn't understand this version of the Bible. They also used a hymnal called the Common Book of Prayer. It, too, was difficult for them to understand. So in his effort to communicate a real message to real people, he would write sermons, and many times he would write songs to accompany the sermons that he would preach. He was reflecting one day on a message that he would deliver on January 1st, 1773. And he found himself reflecting on three things. The first was this passage in 1 Chronicles 17 that was talking about, it was written by this notorious sinner named David. And the passage said, Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my family that you have brought me this far? He also reflected about a friend of his named William Cooper. William Cooper struggled with depression greatly. They had written songs together and uh, William Cooper was a man of faith, but he struggled with this depression and and he was, as he thought about this sermon, he thought, you know, I hope William is here. I want him to hear the hope in these words. He was also reflecting on his own story about his own time of sin and rebellion, the time on the slave ships. So in preparation for that sermon, he wrote a song that would be sung by a bunch of misfits. That song would be heard by people with stories of guilt and sin and shame. It would also be sung in front of a friend who wasn't even sure if God loved him anymore. And this guy who used to put people in chains and terribly mistreat them sang this song.
0: was Lord i Shall soon dissolve like snow. The sun forbids.
1: writer of that song's name was John Newton. And on the day John Newton died, the last thing he said was, I am a great sinner, but Christ is a great Savior." Here is a trustworthy saying deserves full acceptance Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst but for that very reason I was shown mercy so that in me the worst of sinners Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory
0: forever and ever.